Welcome to Gu Dao Jingxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into the ancient texts of Dao De Jing to uncover its timeless wisdom and apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm David Wang, executive coach and consultant. I'm joined by my co-host Ian Felton, a, pract a practicing psychotherapist and coder. Hi, good morning, Ian. Hey, David. How are you doing? Well, it's beautiful weather fall here. It's pretty I ideal weather um, where I'm at. How How about you? Uh, yes, today is a very nice day, and uh, we had some rain yesterday. So when this morning, when I walk around the lake, uh, it's almost the uh, you know the the whole lake is almost full. So yeah, it's a it's a quite uh, uh, interesting phenomenon in here. Um, and also, I noticed the change of seasons. And I bet from where you are, do, do you notice the the leaves are you know are, are changing and changing colors? Yeah, it's definitely starting to happen. I was out in the woods yesterday doing some mushroom foraging and doing photographing some of the mushrooms trying to do um photography of the the, the teeniest of tiniest of of little mushrooms it makes me think of some of our earlier sessions when we have talked about um managing things when they're very small when they're very tiny and so it's it's good practice for looking for the smallest little seeds of something and trying to address it when it's when it's still teeny teeny tiny but yes the um the leaves are changing and there's a little bit of crispness in the air in the morning that that isn't there in in summer and and it feels very nice that's very nice i think the timing is also very good when we uh, come to this chapter chapter 76 and when laozi mentioned the um you know the plants the leaves you know they tend to be uh they they wither and they dry so when i see the leaves on the ground i immediately you know thought about some of the lines uh in this chapter that's an excellent observation so should we maybe maybe we'll we'll get into it yeah absolutely so as usual uh why uh, don't uh one of us maybe you start with the reading the original text of this chapter and then i will translate that into uh english great ren shang ye ru ru qi si ye jian qiang Wu Tao Mu Jersheng Ye Ro Twe Chi Su Ye Ku Gao Go Tian Tiangja Sir Ro Rock Shang Jer Shuri Bing Tiang Zu Bu Shang Mu Tiang Zu Jer Tiang Da Chu Sha that's very good that's very good so this uh, today i will share a translation version of uh, ling yu tang you know who is a 
himself is a very uh, famous uh, Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese uh, author. Yeah, I've got and, his book right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing about uh, this guy, you know, he uh, he's very knowledgeable about uh, Chinese uh, Chinese literature and Chinese uh, philosophy, and also he's very well educated in the uh, in the West uh, too. So the ability to for him to uh, kind of connect to and also to uh, to serve as a cultural ambassador, uh, I think um, is one of my favorite writers. Hmm. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. So let me uh, read his translation of this chapter. When man is born, he is tender and weak. At death, he is hard and stiff. When the things and plants are alive, they are soft and supple. When they are dead, they are brittle and dry. Therefore, hardness and stiffness are the companions of death, and softness and gentleness are the companions of life. Therefore, when an army is headstrong, it will lose in a battle. When a tree is hard, it will be cut down. The big and strong belong underneath. The gentle and weak belong at the top. I like that translation. Yeah, I like it too. I think it's a pretty, you know, pretty straightforward, and mm -hmm. um, I think it reflects uh, Lao's style very well. You know, a lot of the things that Lao's, uh, uh, the, the you know, uh, the insights uh, he distilled from you know, uh, keenly observing the working of nature. You know, this is, this chapter is certainly the case. Yes, that's why, one of the main reasons why Taoism is, is always such a, an easy thing for me to feel comforted by because it doesn't require you having some sort of, abstract um notion of things that if you just observe with your own eyes and just watch how things happen that's why so so much of what Lao Tzu wrote just just resonates as as true because I anyone can understand it if if you just observe right 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 I, I yeah I totally agree with you I think it's very uh, you know, simple observation, no theory, you know, mm -hmm. no theory, because mm -hmm. a lot of times uh, I find that, um, you know, especially in the academia, you know, people tend to build upon, you know, certain uh, assumptions and start to build their fa uh, the, the theory, which is like a big tower, right? So sometimes, you know, depending on how sound the, the, these assumptions are, uh, you know, this tower can be very uh, humongous, but, you know, you can pull them down very, very easily. But I, I thought the simpler, the better, you know, the just the things, look at the things around us. And, uh, you know, some of these things that uh, we learn in Dao in Te Ching, I think, um, it just resonates. And also after so many years, right, thousands of years.
Yeah, without without a doubt. And and what you're saying about academia just rings so true for me. I mean, just reading from psychology, you end mm-hmm. up reading a lot of philosophy and, and things like that and just encounter how much of, of what a lot of these philosophers say that you can tell they're just trying to sound intelligent by mm. the way that they describe things and sometimes it, it 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 gets even comical by how how blind they are to even how um inflated they're they're sounding i think who um L- lacan is one that's coming mm-hmm. to mind I, I don't know if you how much you're familiar with him but there was this he was talking about like existential dread or 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 anxiety Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and he built this whole metaphor up of you know imagine that you're a a praying mantis in front of a a female praying mantis and mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. and the and the female praying mantis you know she kills the the male praying mantis but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you're wearing a a mask a mm-hmm. praying mantis mask and you you don't know whether you have on a a male praying mantis mask or a female praying mantis mm-hmm. mask. And, you know, anxiety is the fear that's, and just, he kept just going on and on. And it's like, all you're talking about is uncertainty, that life is uncertain and just creating these really overly complicated concepts that are unnecessary, just trying to sound intelligent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I noticed that uh, in our time, because the the overwhelming, you know, information overload and the people's the pace of life, uh, I sometimes I feel like these type of styles are not uh, meeting people's needs anymore. No. Um, nowadays, you know, people, I think there's a difference between, you know, kind of fast food, which is kind of a, you know, shallow and not nutritious. Sure. But I, I do feel like, um, uh, you know, allows us like observation with, you know, profound wisdom underneath it. I think it's still very appealing to people, mm-hmm. you know, but just yeah. don't keep, as you described, like on and on and on and on, you know, talking about the same thing, you know. Yeah. I think the whole purpose, sometimes you, you even wonder, What's the whole purpose of this thing? Just like to showcase the working of a intricate mind, or I don't know. It's just like becoming a, a game of the, you know, in the academic world. Yeah. Well, so much for that. Let's come to back uh, to this chapter. I think you know, talking you talked about the, you know, the psychology. I, I think. In recent uh, in recent times, you know, I noticed a trend of talking. You know, people using people are using different terminologies like psychological, you know, flexibility or emotional agility, you know, resilience, and so on and so forth. When I read this chapter, I think I think those things immediately, you know, I I make some connections in my mind between what is being talked about in this chapter and a lot of the things uh, the, you know, uh, psychologists in our day and age are emphasizing. 
Yeah, you struck a chord with me right there and where I guess I'm in a little bit of a just a spunky mood today, but just kind of want to make fun of psychology and psychologists just because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 1900s going back to all of the overly academic stuff like Mm-hmm. Freud and the Oedipal complex and, mm-hmm. you know, all, all these kind of body centered, um, theories and, and, yeah. and, and it was stuck that way with psychoanalysis for a long time, just with all these weird concepts that are not necessary. And here we are in 2021 and third wave cognitive behavioral psychology is the dominant trend right now. And of course, not just third wave cognitive behavioral psychology, but also um, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, mm-hmm. and all and all forms of psychology. Mindfulness is the critical thing. Everybody's talking about you know mindfulness, but when you go to just the psychological flexibility part, which is kind of at the core of third wave cognitive behavioral psychology. I mean, it, 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 it was all said thousands of years ago. Like this is nothing new. The only thing that's new is that they packaged it up with a bunch of um, quote unquote re- research and mm-hmm. ev- evidence-based research to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to prove something. And no, here, here we are. Lao Tzu saying, Hey, don't, don't be rigid, be soft and supple. Well, that's, that was said 2,500 years ago. And now acceptance and commitment therapy, um, psychological flexibility, it's saying the same thing, but now it's legitimate because we've done all this research and it's like, Mm -hmm. no, no. Yeah. And what is research? It's observation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's, it's kind of comical. Yeah, 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 I agree. But it's interesting, though, uh, that uh, all the all these, uh, res- uh, you know, all these increasing body of research is pointing towards something that uh, human beings uh, in our age seem to be lacking in, you know, I think the, um, you know, I, I was wondering, you know, the key drivers of this particular trend, you know, forgetting about these scholars for a while, you know, just the intricacies of their research, just like what, you know, uh, according to your uh, observation, you know, what what has brought forth or brought forward this, you know, emphasis on psychological uh, flexibility? Well, I... Well, I think it's, it's this, um, I mean, this is going to be a real oversimplification, but just from looking at trends, we, we kind of saw that there was all kinds of superstitions within civilization that weren't based upon fact that that was definitely true throughout civilization i mean human sacrifice just because we thought okay this is going to please the gods it it was good for us to start kind of questioning that and you know doing some more formalized experiments to say like hey what's 
what is true, what isn't true. You know, mm-hmm. we've we've sacrificed thirteen virgins this year, and mm-hmm. we're we're still in a drought. So you know, maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe it's not working. Right. So, so all that's good, and so we the pendulum kind of swung the other way, and we became super scientific. I mean, with the Renaissance and you know, logical positivism, all of that, you know, we, we, we started doing what needed to be done, but then we, we, but we swung too far the other way where we started to believe that we could come up with objective truths and measure things objectively. And we started realizing, oh, actually, you know, when you're in, involved and in experimenting, you're part of the experiment, you're not separate from it. And we also realized that scientific answers weren't solving the the problems of humanity and the human condition. There were still wars. There was still poverty. There was still racism. There was still sexism. There was Mm -hmm. still all of the um, corruption. Um, Mm -hmm. Political systems failed people. So science alone wasn't giving us the answers that we needed to solve the problems that we cared about the most. Mm -hmm. And so I think people started looking back at wisdom traditions again and saying like, Oh, well, you know, what, what was there? What was maybe something useful that people before the Renaissance, before um, the enlightenment, um, before kind of liberalism and that sort of thing uh, arose that, Maybe there were some useful things there, and I think people started looking particularly at at Buddhism, but obviously Eastern traditions and in in general, and saw like, oh yeah, it actually is pretty useful to not just observe the outside world and the mechanics of things, but observe how people think, mm, mm. And, and and that's something that Eastern wisdom traditions did that western wisdom traditions didn't do as much of i mean that kind of like really deep um detailed observation of consciousness of thinking of experience of internal experiences really it was only the the eastern wisdom traditions that that were doing that and so psychology started really paying attention to that and lo and behold there was a lot of value there. There was a lot of value in really understanding just human experience, which, you know, of course, in the West, we have to use a word called phenomenology. Mm-hmm. And so what we're talking about with phenomenology is how do we actually experience life? So, mm-hmm. you know, there's the materialist um, breaking everything down into you know, auditory waves and visual waves and um, just all the material components of existence. But then there's this thing called human experience, which you can't measure except as a human being. There's no other way to measure it. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, hey, that's something pretty important. If you want to understand life, you actually have to include human experience. You can't just look at... um, you know, the neuroscience of these parts of the brain light up when you do this. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. and not that that isn't valuable, but 
people get too eggheaded about mm-hmm. it. People just, they, they kind of get too nerdy about it and they, they forget that what's most important is how people actually experience life. And of course that brings us back to wisdom traditions because that's what they were really focused on. That's what they spent all that time and reflection observing, going back to observing mm-hmm. human experience. How do humans actually experience life and, and what, in, and what influences that? Mm-hmm. 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 I see. Yeah. It seems like, um, there's a sweet spot in, um, uh, in human, in human, uh, consciousness or human consciousness development. If you just trace back, uh, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, this sacrificial thing and, or, or, or almost like a superstition, right? Uh, this believing, uh, the, the divine power, you know, kind of controlling, you know, people's lives. Uh, I think from that period, then gradually uh, there's the awakening of human consciousness. Uh, I think that seems to be a sweet spot, uh, even across civilizations. You know, during, you know, some historians call it axial age. Um, you know, it's pretty much during the same similar uh, timeline around Confucius, you know, Lao Tzu and Buddhism, and then, our, you know, the Socrates. Uh, during the early phase of the the dawn of the human kind of human civilization. Uh, I think uh, it seems like a lot of, the, you know, as you say, now we are going overboard, you know, like from that tradition evolved, you know, like very complicated and sometimes, you know, full of, like it's more, I think it's a structure, a very complicated, you know, almost like a bureaucracy was built out of that, you know, from maybe enlightenment and all the way. And, you know, I think those scholars becoming more and more um, detached, more, more and more away from real life. Exactly. Build their own castle. Yeah. So we're coming at a time now that, you know, we don't want this life to be just like, um, very materialistic and uh it's almost almost like uh devoid of meaning you know yeah. where do we turn to do we go back to the you know kind of the believing the supernatural thing or just tap into the you know the original the the human wisdom that was just awakened i feel like we're going back to that in in time to rediscover that yeah i mean i feel like that's what what we're doing with with this podcast i mean we're we're doing exactly that we're we're looking at this book through the lens of hopefully all the things that we can learn from studying human history between Lao Tzu and today and looking at, okay, what worked and and what didn't. I mean, it's funny that when you mentioned the, the rigidity and bureaucratic castle of academia, um, in light of this chapter, because like, how, how can we look at that through the lens of chapter 76? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, let's you know uh, go back to some of the uh, lines in this chapter. What I find is very interesting is this uh, softness, you know, uh, and in Chinese is rou, rou, and also there's another word which is ruo. Ruo is like literal translation. Ruo of ruo is uh, uh, being weak. So, you know, my question is um, sometimes these two things are kind of lumped together, like a rou ruo, and people. You know, in society, in our popular culture, we, we don't, uh, you know, we don't esteem, you know, rule. We, we, we feel like that's the kind of the weakness. Everybody, you know, even if, uh, you know, you have to kind of appear to be strong. So what's your take on that in terms of role and rule in Lao's terminology? Well, just sitting here observing that as soon as you started talking about that, I noticed a little fruit fly fly mm -hmm. by the edge of the screen. And I thought about how soft and weak a fruit fly mm -hmm. is and how it just kind of very simplistic nervous system, very simplistic um, body structure mm -hmm. in, in comparison to like a big strong bear or something like that. Right. But if you try attacking a fruit fly with your hand, like being very strong and trying to grab it, it it's so soft and weak that actually just the force of your hand reaching out to get it creates enough space between your hand and the fruit fly that you actually can't even catch it because when that little puff of air comes off of your hand to grab it, the fruit fly just kind of blows outside of the reach of your mm -hmm. grasp. And, and so there was a perfect example of where Dow kind of shows that that softness and weakness is actually this huge asset where, you know, here I am supposedly an example of, you know, one of the most in, intelligent creatures on the planet mm -hmm. and and much more powerful and stronger than a fruit fly. But, you know, without using some kind of clever trap, which, of course, people can create that it just the softness and the weakness of the fruit fly alone keeps it from being easily um, destroyed. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. What you're saying reminds me of, uh, you know, many things we observe in nature. One of the things that immediately came to mind is in the ancient Chinese, like uh, brush painting. Uh, you know, uh, one of the plants is the bamboo. You know, I think bamboo in the Chinese culture is usually used as a, a symbol for being resilient, like um you know don't you can bend but you can't you can't break like one of the things about uh unbreakable uh you know uh, the you know being unbreakable is probably that kind of uh, flexibility right when the big stiff strong trees you know a, a lot of times they're they're broken more easily you know by by storms but with the bamboo, even with the heavy snow, 
sitting on top of it, you know, once this, you know, the snow is melts, it just, you know, comes back. That's another example of, you know, being flexible. Yeah. And, and that's a great one. Um, Lao Tzu also talks about water over and over again. It's, it's throughout um, Tao Te Ching yes. that yeah. there's nothing weaker than water, that it, it yields to whatever force is applied to it. But when water is just kind of following the flow, it can become very powerful depending upon the situation. But still, it never uses force. It just uses the existing conditions to become whatever it needs to become. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Par- par- uh, you know, the paradox is... Um... Just being that, like water, being that uh, uh, adaptable, actually you are able to retain the essence of being water, right? Yes. Yeah, that's the whole thing. You know, like people say, oh, if I just remain constant and like rigid, the same, mm-hmm. actually the chance of surviving, of, you know, retaining that is probably less than being more flexible exactly people i think there's this overused word in our society in integrity oh which, okay yeah which does which doesn't even mean anything anymore because it's been so abused by corporate america which has anything but integrity i mean right talk, talk about like destroying the meaning of a word right. but in integrity doesn't mean i have to act the same 100% of the time. That's not what integrity means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think people believe that somehow integrity comes along with with being inflexible and rigid about things. And that's not what integrity is at all. Just like you were saying, water maintains its integrity. But look, it can be ice. It can be liquid. It can right. be vapor. It can flow very quickly. It can sit still. It's so dynamic, but it maintains its integrity as water in all those conditions. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So it's it's funny. Why do you think that people, you know, believing that myth of like being, you know, uh, somebody of integrity means, one hundred percent the same. Where does that come from? You think is there a, like a kind of a, almost like a, an error in thinking or you know what what lead people to claim that if it's okay what's then if we use the word integrity what should it mean well i think a better word is fidelity okay yeah um so fidelity meaning you know let let me let my intentions and my promises align with my actions Mm-hmm. that fidelity gets lost when we, I don't even want to use this word either because it's being overused, but authentic. Like when I'm, mm-hmm. when I, when I filter myself out, I also lose fidelity. So fidelity gets, gets lost at the same time. So I think a better word than integrity is, is fidelity, which is, you know, I think just some o- older sayings, living up to your word. I mean, that's fidelity. 
That's a much better. That's a much better and important thing than whatever this thing of an integrity supposed supposed to mean. Fidelity. Um, you know, if, if I say I'm going to call you, I should call you. If I say I'm going to produce this, I should produce it. And mm-hmm. I think there's a whole lot of fidelity that gets lost in our society today. I mean, there's just, it, it feels like that is the thing that that's being, being lost the, the most, the, the fidelity of, of being a human being that we're, mm-hmm. um, technology is, is getting, and it's technology that's actually getting in the way of that, of creating that fidelity, that when there's human connection, when there's two people sitting across from each other, um, when there's small communities of people that depend upon each other, that fidelity has to be there because it's going to be very obvious. It's going to be very clear that, okay, something's not working, but with technology, technology interferes with all the fidelity. You know, I, I, I can text someone instead of having an honest adult conversation Mm -hmm. and I, and I can hide behind that. And what that hiding behind things is that's a loss of fidelity. Right. Right. It seems like we, it nowadays, like we're living with each other through a lot of the mediums, like, you know, we are mediated by something else, right. As opposed to, like really like face-to-face, heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, you know, within that kind of context, as you say, uh, it's it's harder to fake things. Uh, I mean, I even remember like the, uh, let's say in the Chinese society, um, you know, the the villagers, like they when they still live, not migrating into big cities, right? They are still living with each other because the gen- different generations, they have to be really like have to be loyal to each other because otherwise, you know, people will speak, you know, uh, people will say, oh, you know, look at the, the, the other the other guy, you know, he's a cheater or something. Then you have no way of living in that kind of a community. But nowadays, you know, if you are not keeping your promise, you know, you're doing something bad, you know, you can move to some somewhere else. But that's the hardest part, you know, to, as you say, to, to, to preserve that sense of fidelity or, 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 I mean, or simple honesty. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a, a maybe a good thing to clarify within this chapter that we can look at, people who are deceptive as being maybe there's that softness there, right? Like they're not necessarily being hard and, and strong because like they're using deception. So they're not being confrontational. They just lie and Mm -hmm. hide. And how can we clarify the difference between being a deceiver who might also have that qualities of being like not rigid and being soft with what Lao Tzu means in, in this chapter? That's a great question. I think that's a, actually, that's a really like a profound question. Um, 
I think ultimately it probably has to come from the intent. You know, people, because uh, nowadays, you know, like say in the business world, uh, I find actually the business people uh, are more flexible, adaptable than people from certain sectors, which gives the business that kind of a flexibility to modify their uh, operations or even like their strategies, right? So that's how they survive. You know, at some level, I think it almost simulates nature in some way. But again, you know, there's like ethical challenges within the business world that, you know, certain people, you know, they are not keeping up, they, they are not keeping their promises. Uh, they're not, you know, honoring the, the contracts, which causes the problem. So I would say, you know, that question, I, I think is a really a good one, you know, like, um, how do you, how do you, you know, where do you draw the line of like being rigid and being, you know, literal about things? You know, where do you kind of have to discern what the true spirit of that being that consistent and honorable? Yeah, it's 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 an ongoing challenge. Um, and Lao Tzu, he doesn't talk a lot about literal deception and, and lying in, in um, Tao Te Ching, even though we have other books like the, the art of war that obviously does talk about deception and using all of that favorably. But if we just stay within um, Tao Te Ching, we do have the three treasures from chapter 67 and, of course, kindness is one of the three treasures. Yes. Lying to people certainly isn't kind. Mm -hmm. um, it also talks about not putting yourself first. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time when people are lying, it's because they're putting themselves first. They're protecting mm -hmm. themselves at the expense of someone else. So I think that's where at least when we're looking purely within the mindset of Tao Te Ching, um, using the three treasures to kind of guide our, our ethics, that's, that's precisely why Lao Tzu put those in this book, because now we have an additional lens to use to, to guide us. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it seems to me like those three things are more of a, what I would call practic practical wisdom. So in other words, you cannot, once you set up some rules around those things, you become more rigid. But you have to make a judgment call, you know, maybe through your own conscience. Um, you know, by asking yourself, is what I'm doing, is it, is it kind, right? Is it, is it humble or is it just purely, you know, for my own sake? Those fundamental questions. 
Yeah, and and we're not robots. I mean, that's that's the whole thing too of robots are we think about robots as being very stiff and mechanical Mm -hmm. and if we start thinking well i've got to have like you're saying all these rules to follow now i'm very stiff and mechanical too and that's what louts is saying that's that's not life that's not being alive that that destroys the aliveness of being a human being and so it's our intuition that allows us to be fully human and and we know intuitively you know what is what is kind what what is considerate of the other person what is putting myself as a, a a part of these relationships rather than making myself first that it's this huge shift of do we have the ability to recognize ourselves as just one node in the network of relationships and make a decision with that network in mind of relationships, not just saying I'm the most important node in, in this network. When, when we, when we think in that broader way, we have to be more flexible. We have to be softer because the the rigid way is me, 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 me. I'm always, I, I, I need to have the attention. I need to have mm-hmm. my way. The flexible way is like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to humble myself in this situation because it's the right thing. It's, it's the best thing for everyone in this situation for me to just kind of, you know, humble myself, not worry about getting this thing that I want or, or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As I'm hearing this, I'm wondering in the world we are living in with, you know, on a, on a global scale, right? With all these, the assistance of the technologies, how is it possible to live you know, like through intuitively, let's say, unless we somehow shrink or reduce, you know, the level of human interaction to some manageable level, you know, that's the kind of the challenge I, I sometimes I see and I sense, um, because that all requires more of, uh, at least, a a, a direct and a continuous encounter as opposed to episode, you know, like, you know, through episodes of interactions. It's, it's critical. And I think people are at a critical juncture. There's, um, Bernays who was, um, Sigmund Freud's nephew. He, or, um, I might be getting the relationship messed up. I'm thinking nephew, but maybe it was the other way around. Maybe he was Sigmund Freud's uncle. I'm pretty sure it was his ne- nephew. Um, yeah, nephew, because he was was younger than Freud. But he talked about how propaganda, making people individualistic, making people break away from the collective consciousness that we shared as we evolved 
mm-hmm. that's what you took that you could easily lead people then that way. And of course, like that's what we see in, in the world today. But I mean, but at the same time, everybody's very conformist, right? Like everybody thinks that they're thinking very individualistically, but everyone's thinking the same way individualistically. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically. Yeah. I- ironically. Yeah. And, and so with technology now, we see after September 11th, how much more, you know, sur- technology is used for, for surveillance, kind of keeping, you know, eroding civil rights and civil um, um, privacy and, and, and all of that, that the combination of, of all this technology and the, and the, the hyper individualism now, right? Like now with social media, it's all about how many likes can I get? How many fans can I get? How many followers can I get? Or, or I'm a follower and I'm following all these other people, but it does seem like the combination of all of that we're, we're turning more into like an ant colony mm-hmm. where, where the humanity has been eroded now. I mean, Bernays talked about turning people into rats that you mm-hmm. could control. And it seems like we're going to a whole nother level. Like we're, we're not just rats now that we're, we can control. We're more like ants where mm-hmm. there's the elites at the top who all of the resources, all of the ants are going out and gathering up all the resources to bring back to them and using technology. They're all just like going through the technological maze bringing all the resources back to the people, you know, the billionaires and the people that we don't even hear about. And I mean, I don't even know who they are. It's mm-hmm. hard to, hard to say who they are, but regardless, they're at the top of this system that's becoming less and less human and more and more insect like in how um, rigid it is that, that, that intuitiveness is being completely eroded. And now it's just this total, like, chemical electronic signals going out through the network and then everyone kind of follow following in 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 line i see what you mean like it's it seems like the being more intuitive or creative or flexible that goes against you know this super goal of being efficient right so everything is like okay let's simplify simplify so once you you simplify, oversimplify, you become like, it's like, it's a one, one thing. It's not flexible anymore. Yeah. It's not flexible because the system determines your options and, and the system is not flexible. I mean, look at how, look at the politics, how, um, everything's a hot button issue now. You know, if, if you, (laughs) if you're a Democrat and you waver even the slightest from what people have been programmed to say, you need to think as a Democrat, now all of a sudden you're a Nazi. Like you can't just, you can't even have like a broader perspective on anything or vice versa. You know, if you're on the right and you say anything even mildly critical of Trump, well, you're a traitor. And yeah. so, so it, it's, you know, it, it's that sort of rigidity that we're talking about 
in chapter 76 where there's nothing intuitive going on. There's nothing soft and supple about that. It's, it's extreme, and that extremeness is completely rigid. And, and who benefits from that? The people, the people at the top of this system, like they don't, this is exactly what they want. They want everyone being, I mean, this is a playbook that's been used over and over and over again throughout history. You know, you divide and conquer. And as long as we're all pitted against each other in this like extreme way, I mean, things are going as, as planned. Right. But is this state sustainable? I was wondering, you know, just according to this chapter, this is obviously a sign of decline and decay. Yeah. Right. That yep. rigid, rigidity, it, it cannot be forever. It doesn't last long. And that's what we, and that's the thing. It's like, you <laughs> would think that they would learn from the mistakes, but they don't. I mean, we've seen it over and over again. I mean, co colonialism failed. Like it, 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 it only lasts so long and it's the same kind of practices that are being R Rwanda is the perfect example. You know, the Dutch went into Rwanda, mm -hmm. the Rwandan people were, they were a people, they were connected. They live like how people live when they're in harmony with each other. Not to say that there's not conflicts and murder and things like that. But the point is like they were a people the Dutch came in and they're the ones that created this idea of Hutu and Tutsi yeah. and, and divided the country and pitted them against each other. And of course we know what the outcome of that was this, this genocide, but until the genocide, the Dutch were doing, I mean, it was working exactly how they wanted it to work that, that the Dutch were making all the decisions, running things the way that they wanted and the people were pitted against each other and distracted while the Dutch were, you know, getting what they wanted out of the country. And then the end result is the Rwandan people, you know, genocide, murdering each other. And then, of course, the Dutch leave and um, uh, 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 abandon them along with a lot of the other colonial powers. So, you know, there's nothing new going on, but it's certainly new in the sense that now there's all of this technological system put on top of it. And so it's incredibly bizarre and it's going to be very strange to see, you know, what does happen when this rigid system falls apart because it, it will, and we don't have to do anything. We're not talking about like needing to. Like, a, uh, uh, like advocate, like advocating something or activist. Exactly. It, it's just, again, like Lao Tzu observes and this is what we know when you observe Things get rigid like this, this polarization, and things fall apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing, you know, when you talked about the the uh, the colonialism, uh, I also rem I remember recently reading uh, about the Roman Empire. You know, even during that time, um, you know, some writers living through that age, you know, observed something like, you know, on the surface, you see the empire just kept on growing and growing, but then uh, the internal uh, conflicts and also the way of living is compared with some marge, like s surrounding areas. Let's say the the Germans and and others, uh, not in the in the center. The center is like becoming like declining and decaying, 
but all the all the what do you call it, the the vitality uh, is actually on the surrounding of the Roman Empire, which uh, also kind of brought a, a picture as you did describing. You know what we're seeing? We're seeing the crumbling of the old structure. You know, right now the old structure is getting very rigid and and also brittle too, right? It's like, um, but at the same time, uh, are we seeing any? You know, this little uh, sprouts of new life here and there. For in sure. The of this. For sure. That's what's funny. I think the what's going to be ironic is that, you know, right at the time all these billionaires are putting their rocket ships up into space, mm -hmm. that what's going to happen is we are going to return to a more simplistic way of thinking. People are people are going to be living more locally, like right when these elites are all fixated on leaving the planet and being able to have their, you know, space colonies or or whatever. We're going to, it's going to revert back to more this, the, the localized village level way of being, you can see it already. I mean, all, all the people that, you know, they want to do woodworking, they want to brew beer, they want to knit, they want to go to their farmer's market. People are craving that that's what's in the human heart because that's how we evolved. There's 250,000 years of evolution as Homo sapiens where we cultivated that spirit. That's what people are. That's what humans are. We're not astronauts. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of brings back to the, uh, you know, the ending sentence of this chapter. Eventually you will see you know, what appears to be, you know, uh, soft and weak, they end up to the top, like almost like a, um, like a sprouting, right? They are, they are, uh, uh, they are flourishing while the other thing, you know, s seem to be uh, like dying. Yeah. And that, and that, and like we know, just from these fall leaves, the leaves that die, that becomes the fertilizer for the new sprouts. So there's nothing to fear. Exactly. Yeah. That's the, how the life cycle really works. So it's, it's been a really interesting discussion with you around this chapter. And uh, I hope that uh, our listener can uh, also uh, learn something and benefit from this exchange. Thanks, David. Thank you.